I've just been kind of getting more detail on precisely what was it that lay behind the bank's intervention, an incredibly unusual intervention for them to go in and start buying up specific government bonds because they noticed dysfunction in the market, essentially that part of the market not working. Well, what are the pragmatic consequences? What's the pragmatic story that lies beneath that? Well, I'm told that what they were responding to is, is what internally has been described as a run dynamic. What does that mean? It's very similar in kind of wholesale terms to what we saw with Northern Rock when there was that run on that bank uh, back in 2007. Uh, it's a, a vicious cycle, essentially. People trying to withdraw money, uh, which in turn leads sometimes inevitably to financial collapse. And I'm told that there were a number, a swathe of pension funds that were it not for the government's intervention, would have essentially collapsed, been insolvent by this afternoon. That's how fast moving this crisis in the pensions market was. It's the gilts market that lies underneath the defines benefits pensions schemes, all of whom are reliant on that market. Uh, well, you know, that kind of touches on the, the main episode thing, because I've been, I don't know, maybe in a bit of malaise myself, but... I don't know how that's going to go with the fact that this is a bonus, though. No, let's talk about the malaise. Let's talk about the malaise. You want to talk about the malaise? Yeah, so um, real malaise hours. Real Uh, malaise hours. I mean, uh, yeah, I I think we're feeling it a lot. New York, a lot of people have been sick, and the weather's getting cold. Oh, boy, yeah. Just today, uh, I've been on this job for the last few few weeks, and uh, we got a big, fat rain out today. We, uh, but that's we, good, right? It's good, yeah, because the work has to be done eventually. It's not like we're not going to do it on the back right. end. So my project's canceled. Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to put this flood wall in around this uh, secured state facility. It's going to happen. We're going to do it. We had a big victory against the bosses, though. They mm-hmm. tried to they tried to squeeze us. They tried to uh, to get my foreman to uh, break the contract, and he told them to go fuck themselves. Nice. And he said, if you got a problem with that, go get me my fucking check. We love the foreman. That's what we talked about in the first 15 minutes we of the episode. We love the foreman. So if yeah. you want to hear more of that, go to patreon.com slash leantifada. You can hear the full episode, including the weird Adorno stuff, yeah. and talk about labor bureaucracy and whatever. Yeah. But yeah, let me, let's let uh, talk a little bit more about what's been going on with you at work. Like, uh, oh, I think, sure, uh, yeah. You know, I haven't been working at all, although I am dressed like I am. Yeah, you are. Uh, I was pleased to see when I arrived that you are wearing high visibility clothing. That's yeah. uh, that's pretty and cool. Not man. only that, but it's this sweater that I found when I was biking. It's like a bright yellow high vis sweater for a law firm called Goreb. Goreb, yeah. Los Abogados del Pueblo, and it is those people, not not those particular lawyers, but like labor law lawyers in general, are the best purveyors of swag. Uh-huh. Like half the swag I have that says union pride, like fight for workers' rights, is from like the law offices of Justin Timberlake. Or- yeah, and I think why it's so swaggy, um, and this is probably it goes both ways. Like they're probably influenced by the hipsters and vice versa. Is that in like East Williamsburg and like kind of industrial areas, there's still like work going on. Like oh yeah. You're sure. working down the street from like uh, a huge like techno venue. That, yeah. Like, bridge yeah. and tunnel people coming into on the weekend. I pass by it someday. It's like on my way to work and there's people outside the, the right, huge in the venue morning, just like all fucking spun out on yeah. the sidewalks. It's really funny. And I then wave to them as I go by with my morning coffee. <laughs> yeah. And then the best example of that is there's a venue called elsewhere good techno and rock shows and like a bunch of shows every weekend and like people lined up out front like it's a 
cool club, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. I've only been there once or twice. Uh, and then across the street is a uh, a company that sells clothes for workers called mm. Safety Bros. <laughs> but they are not they are not missing the opportunity to endear themselves to the club kids. Oh yeah, they blast eighties rock <laughs> at all hours. They have their swag on display in case you want to come and buy it. Amazing. They sell like water and hot dogs and Hell stuff. Yeah. And so yeah, there's this this thing that's happening in New York where people have been dressing. Uh, making making the uh, the sort of normal things you see in New York hip, and this is called Zizmore Core because there was like an ad for <laughs> thank you Doctor Zizmore, thank you Doctor Zizmore. And I so, remember it when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. people wear Doctor Zizmore ad stuff, and they wear Zizmore Core. Jesus, Christ. they wear like Punjabi hats and oh, like, like the deli, the Punjabi yeah, deli, and stuff that shows like the MTA aesthetic, and yeah. you know, people are just like enjoy the the normal aesthetic of New York and representing yeah, that. Sure. And I think that's moving towards like representing the way workers dress and yeah. obviously carhartt is huge in bushwick yeah. like you know you're was, going to birdies if you're wearing the carhartt <laughs> jacket and hat i mean i was joking about that like 10 years ago about um you know america I, I posted a picture like uh, america like new york's newest hipster and it was me and like a like beat up old fucking coveralls in the standing in the mm-hmm. middle of the winter and like negative five degree weather with a torch in my hand but like now with the high vis stuff which is horribly unfashionable i have to say high visibility fabric it's like this, there's this sort of hipster, sort of Gen X, like hipster transgressive thing, very like modernist sort of vibe where you're always trying to like go one step further. And I feel like a nice like $100 Carhartt jacket, actually like I'm wearing right now, the step further than that is to start wearing really ugly shit. Like I want to see people out there like going to the clubs up the street wearing like bright yellow safety vests that mm-hmm. say like um urban constructors on the back or something like that i want to see them wearing like not nice red wings but like real fucked up like dirty muck boots or <laughs> something like that this is the you know i respect it maybe you know i respect this more core what i think is cool about the safety vest specifically yeah. is that if you put that thing on you can do whatever you want nobody like you can <laughs> you can just start smashing windows and be like oh i'm a glazier <laughs> see i'm wearing the, because if you, this is what the another thing that the anarchists haven't figured out. Sometimes yeah, some of them that? Yeah. is that if you dress like a ninja, people are going to think you're up to no good. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, you. Yeah. If you, if the idea of dressing in black is you're trying to blend in yeah. and get away, you want to dress more like a normal stu- student or like yeah. a like a normal worker or something, and that's the way you'll be able to blend in more. Yeah. So the high viz actually, even though it's very counterintuitive to right. black block thinking, might you're be gonna, the way to go. Yeah, you're gonna like disappear viz into block. the crowd, viz block, by wearing the most high visibility thing possible. There's something poetic and nice about that, I must say. I gotta run to the bathroom. So yeah, it's like a been a very hectic time. Um I don't know. Part of this malaise, I feel like I have to blame, as most things are blameable, on uh, Hegel. You know? You think it's Hegel's fault? I take Or, or fault. reading Hegel. Reading Hegel. Okay. Well, maybe it's Hegel's fault for coming up with the stuff that we then need to read because, like, there's like this, this the whole concept of, like, the grand sweep of universal history and sort of, like, things reaching a telos puts you in a situation where. You know, with that world spirit moving around, every single event that happens, you're trying to, like, read the tea leaves right. and try to understand, like, this sort of vast trajectory of human affairs. And it's really exhausting. It's like, it's a blessing because it gives you this heuristic to understand the world and it makes things very interesting, but it's also a curse because it's very fucking overwhelming, you know? 
Well, I'd like to say that that's like a misreading of Hegel or something, because obviously a lot of Hegelians don't think Hegel's a teleological figure or, or think that like you can find that in certain places in Hegel, but that's not necessarily what you take away from it. But I'm not going to sit here and try to argue Hegel. I've not read no. enough of it. Yeah. I'm just um, I'm just talking about the general sort of project of, right. like, of understanding the movement of the world spirit. Yeah. Or the the movement of the class struggle mm-hmm. or the sort of you want to be more narrow about it, the sort of like self-propelling dynamics of capitalist accumulation and the class struggle that arises out of that. You know, I, the grand dialectic if you will. I would say that the one um one like a uh, thing that made me think of uh, a good signifier of what the world spirit is right now is, is the failure of the Chilean constitution. Cause oh, in that moment you get this dialectic between state power and governance and, you know, the constitutive way that that constitution was written and put up for a vote and the anarchy that led to it, which was this like tens of thousands of people fighting at the barricades, looting stores, burning down government buildings, the biggest uprising Chile had ever seen. And then it leads to this election where a a, like post-autonomist figure Mm -hmm. who was able to quell the uprising Mm -hmm. comes to power and puts together this constitution that tried to give something to everybody who had fought. Yeah. Yeah. It created a document that was, incredibly unpopular yeah and sure a lot of it was because it was you know there was fake news against it and yeah. right-wing propaganda and stuff but you gotta think when like 70 percent of the public votes yeah. have been down that they're not all idiots and wrong no. like, and i think that there is a disinterest in this kind of constitutive governing process where like every group has a seat at the table in this you know i think people are generally more interested in like the uprising aspect of yeah. it the barricades and the fighting and that's, I think, what mobilizes people and, like, opens up people to, like, a new way of living way more than, like, a new constitution. Yeah, I mean, those two things obviously operate alongside each other because the insurrection and the and the uprising and, like, the masses of people unified in the street are against something, you know, and the, the real question that's come out over the last 30 years, I guess, since, like, the Berlin Wall fell or the USSR fell apart is, like, what are people trying to create now? You know, it's, it seems like, um, you know, we saw this in this country a couple years ago, too, that, like, you can mobilize millions upon millions of people in an otherwise very inert society against something, against police brutality, against anti-black violence, um, against the system in general. But then it's the actual creation of that, turning that into a sort of positive where things have fallen. And it's not just in the United States or in Chile. It's also in Greece. It's also in all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know? Gilets jaunes in France. But I think all those struggles, they still have this kind of social imaginary of like resettling society as it currently exists so people can live a, a more dignified and comfortable life in the society that like everyone has uh, knows is decaying and, and people don't have much, uh, much sympathy for. Like, uh, for example, you know, people do want to like just work and retire yeah um and as long as that's a possibility that's something people are going to try to fight for sure um but now we're seeing in terms of economic crisis the chance that retirement is is not going to be on the table or that like the idea of that kind of stability to your life as a worker when you retire is also a commodity that might be in deep crisis and going away well, certainly if you um, were living in the UK and had a UK pension the last week, 
boy, did it almost go away. It was hours away from going away, but we'll get to that. I want to talk a little bit about what happened in the UK with the um, disastrous mini budget and the uh, entire bond market practically collapsing in the UK until the IMF and the Bank of England. Came That's in, the but. sexy stuff that everyone wants. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to put, wait until later. Yeah, we'll have to wait until later for that. Everybody loves I've been that trying stuff. to bait you towards it. But, <laughs> bait but you're saying, later. no, 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 not no, yet. No, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. No, so like I've been feeling like this present moment is very, um, is very much uh, terrifying. Like we have, uh, and this is particularly real for people like me who remember the 80s and like the late moments of the Cold War and the evil empire and the arms buildup or whatever. We have this sort of building thread of a nuclear exchange or a nuclear war um, coming right now. And also we have this economic meltdown. But at the same time as things are really terrifying, they're also kind of boring at the same time, right? We're talking about this sort of like deep malaise of bourgeois society that we've all kind of landed in right now. Personally, I've been working this this job, it's at a secure transit facility uh, where basically a bunch of revenue comes in and out of. And for that reason, uh, we're working behind and around a huge 15-foot-tall unscalable fence. Have you ever seen those things? Instead of the, the links on the chain, they use them in prisons. It's like mm-hmm. little tiny slots so you can't climb it. Uh, so topped with barbed wire and razor wire, essentially. So that's where I'm in. There's like crazy security uh, every day I go to work, there's armed guards. Most of them, you know, they're working like a cushy job, but most of them are like 20 and out cops, pigs, and fucking corrections officers who are retired and are now making a whole other income off of this on top of their pensions. They escort us around, and there's armored trucks, and it's all around this sort of squat prison-type building uh, that we're putting this flood wall around. So inside this facility, when we're there, it's all security, and it's all like serene there's like the ebbs and flows of currency coming in and out of it. There's like these big solid cinder blocks of public works there. There's these barred windows up above and there's closed circuit cameras that are surveilling everything. It's like a very, very eerie and serene sort of place. And our coworker, who some days we call him Crazy Eddie and some days we call him Special Ed, uh, he gets a kick out of going from one side of the fence to the other because he used to be on the wrong side of unscalable walls upstate for a long time. Mm. So for him, like he's at work, but the barbed wire and the razor wire are very sort of like evocative for him given his past. So I said the the special ed nickname has hung on from elementary school to middle school to crank anchors. Now now just normal workers are still calling people special ed. Just normal people. It says nothing about Eddie that he is special ed in this instance, although he is a total character. He's like hyped that he has to walk away out of this job at the end Mm -hmm. because he's walking like through the giant gates out of the unscalable um, barbed wire wall or whatever. So it's this really weird, interesting sort of experience where we're on the inside and we're seeing like outside of this facility what it's like to see from inside the state. It's like secure in there. There's secure perimeters, but right outside of that, it's like industrial wasteland and it's complete decay. There's like pitted streets that are only really there for moving trucks and like the circulation of commodities and capital. There's barely any life except commodity life. There's like big rigs and there's like noise and sound. Um, and techno club down the street, techno club blasting, (laughs) yeah, blasting whatever people listen to nowadays. And like all of this around, you know, we're, we're using this big giant, uh, vibratory hammer while the whole thing goes. So 
it's like right next to Newtown Creek. You know where that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the site of the largest oil spill in U.S. history, greater than the Exxon Valdez. And we know not to touch the water, but sometimes we have to. So this is like the sort of context, this work experience in which I've sort of been trying to take in this. Yeah, sometimes you get thirsty. You got to drink Newton Creek. I mean, that's where all my inspiration has come from, man, (laughs) (laughs) is drinking that water. You're like Lisa after falling into the small world ride. Yeah, my pupils are dialing. I am the lizard queen. (laughs) That's me. I'm the lizard queen now. (laughs) That's what I'm going to come out as for our 200th episode. Nice. So I've been thinking and I've been looking, I've been still reading the news because, you know, that's what we do and trying to sort of impose some order, I guess, on the on the chaos of things as they've been recently. And, you know, it's fitting to note that it's been 14 years, just about to the week since, you know, the capitalist realism of the post-Cold War sort of uh, Clintonite 1990s uh, capitalist realist world was punctured by the great financial crisis, the first one of Mm -hmm. the 21st century. It's been nearly a decade and a half since we all had to learn what mortgage-backed securities, derivatives, and tranches were to make sense of why so many workers were losing their homes and their jobs and why ultimately trillions upon trillions of dollars of direct relief, subsidy, and quantitative easing were necessary to cover over years of fake growth in a fake economy. Unfortunately, we had Margot Robbie to explain it to us. We had who? Margot Robbie in uh, The Big Short. Oh, I never saw it. Oh, you should see it. Was it good? Um, Well, there's a a famous, like, a device that they use in the movie where when you need to explain something kind of complicated, you have Margot Robbie looking sexy explaining it to, like, keep people interested. Man, shit. We need a a device like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's going to be. We'll have to do it like a sexy Twitch stream. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, something like that. So yeah, it's been 14 years since. Uh, do you remember this happening? Where like behind the scenes, while this sort of crisis was unfolding over the course of the week, apparently George W. Bush went to Congress, who had rejected the first bank bailout, the TARP, and he went to like a select committee, and they're like, "What's what's going on with the economy? Why do you want us to spend all these billions of dollars and make the banks whole?" And he famously said, "This sucker's going down." The sucker's going down. He was talking about the world economy. Yeah, people were scared. People were scared, rightfully so. They were on tilt. And then, of course, too, um, you know, soon after that, in November, Barack Obama rides to victory uh, on hope and change and vague promises, uh, only, of course, to make the banks whole and to sacrifice the American dream for millions and millions of people. So 14 years, nearly to the week, that's a half generation's worth of secular stagnation, of liquidity traps, uh, of the growth of low-wage service employment, of course, of meth and oxy and fent addiction, housing bubbles, credit card debt, student loan debt, corporate debt and federal debt, of suicide and war and street violence, and 14 years of slow but steady imperial decline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see it in the uh, life expectancy rates. United States is getting lower every year (laughs) that's not good we've lost like for for males i think we've lost three or four years in the Uh last three or four years which is a startlingly it's a startling condemnation Uh of our society when i first saw those i was i don't get mad about stuff often but i was like visibly shaken by that there's the idea that you know with all the the great and incredible wealth in this country that people are living less Less amount of time. What what more stark of like a statistic right. is there than 
than life expectancy. And of course, it's all the suicides and the drug addiction and the calamity of our healthcare system and the various wars and the class wars and all that stuff. So 14 years uh, since, you know, I, I must say, when that capitalist realism bubble popped in uh, 2008, I don't know, I've been kind of chasing that high for like 14 years or so. That was a very tremendous and interesting period because yeah. if you grew up in a certain, if you're of a certain age and you grew up in a certain sort of Clintonian um, America, there was a real sense that like the history was over. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were already a Marxist at that point, right? I was a communist. I went, right. yeah, I, I would, yeah, I was probably a Marxist. But you were reading your Marx. I mean, I felt compelled to read. Like, my I Marx think I remember part. I met you around then, mm -hmm. maybe like 14 years ago, you know, in the fall at new school. And you handed me this like Marxist pamphlet. Um, and you were one of the first, it was like one of the first things that I read that was like, oh, this is Marxism, but it's not like Leninist nonsense. It's actually like explaining what's happening yeah. in my life because it was about like the, the student struggle and yeah. the, the crisis at the university, but it was also about the, ec the economy as a whole. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I talked about this in the Crime Think episode, and I think the financial crisis for, for a lot of people, when they realize the economy is actually something we have to think about politically because yeah. before that the anti-war movement and anti-globe had been so um wrapped up in the kind of uh the the cultural and lifestyle mm -hmm. and like street uh fighting uh mindset and there wasn't a lot of thought about you know like the marxist categories of looking at the world for sure yeah i think and i think an entire you know i said it's been a generation and a half since or a half a generation at least since then and it's like i feel like the sort of reality that sets in after 2008 really tempers, I think, the, I don't know, the structure of feeling of like millions upon millions of younger people in this country and people, of course, too, who are older, who lost right. their homes, who lost the promise and the dream of, you know, what it was supposed to be like in America. So just last week, you know, 14 years later, after all of the heroic monetary policy magic that central banks could offer for a decade and a half, uh, it became clear and especially brutally clear in the city of London uh, that the global economy is edging up onto the precipice once again. Uh, the, I was just reading about this. I'm no expert on the British gilt market. Uh, gilts is the term that the Brits use for their bonds. You know, yeah, government this is the bonds. first time I've heard that term. I, I thought at first this was going to be a problem with uh, my dreidel game at Hanukkah. <laughs> and I, then I realized that was gilt. Gilt, yeah. gilt and gilt. I mean... There's, I think, the, the great uh, name for this episode, Guilt Trip, is, you know, that was your contribution. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, apparently, as it turns out, this, like, the guilt market, they call it that because the bonds from the uh, treasury of the UK have, like, gold around the edges mm -hmm. of them, like, whatever. It's, like, the oldest one. It's been around since the 17th century. They really innovated this sort of, right. like, symbiotic relationship between, uh, you know, public financing and, and budgets and, like, private capitalists investing and all that good stuff. But anyways, after, what, four centuries or so, this thing went completely haywire, and it looked like uh, the um, entire British pension system was about hours <laughs> away from complete collapse. Um, there was a uh, mini-budget that the new Tory Prime Minister Liz Trust and her ex-checker uh, put through, that basically in a period where uh, central banks all over the world, starting with the United States, but then everybody following suit, uh, are engaged in a process of raising interest rates in order to cool off a very hot economy, 
Uh, so the Bank of England had been raising rates. Liz Truss and company come in. You know, they have no mandate except from like 130,000 Tory members in their conference, a bunch of like senile old rentiers. Uh, they come to power and they basically uh, call for the equivalent of $150 billion worth of energy subsidy because they're estimating that energy bills are going to be like 6,000 pounds this year because of the whole energy crisis in Europe. Um, so a massive spending on top of tax cuts for uh, the highest marginal tax rate from 45% down to 40 uh, in Great Britain. And so that old fucking Thatcherite magic is back, right? Like, well, I think they reversed on that yesterday. Did you see that? They did, yeah. Um, they, they were forced to back down after the IMF came in and said, you like, yeah, what are you, crazy? <laughs> yeah. You're it's, England. We don't, we don't want to be bailing out England here, please. They, I mean, it's gotten to the point where if they had continued with this, and they're still in a, in a crisis right now, you would have had like millions upon millions of British, um, you know, ex-workers, I guess, at this point, losing their pensions right. completely. Well, apparently, two British mortgages work in a way that they don't have like thirty-year mortgages. You have to renew your mortgage with like a new interest rate every three or four years. So the interest rates going haywire, the bottom falling out of the bond market, and also the British pound taking its greatest drop since like nineteen ninety-two when George Soros shorted it and made billions of dollars. All this happened in a very, very quick time frame to the point where the Bank of England had to come out and like bail out the trust administration by buying a bunch of bonds because it was getting to the point where basically like their entire financial system was melting down. And what was the logic of doing it? Like, is it, you know, trying to turn England into, you know, Florida or something like a place where the taxes are so low that investment will move there? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, but the ironically, you need a strong pound for that. Right. <laughs> I think or a euro. Or a euro, sure. Well, that ship has sailed for the Brexiteers, right. I guess. No, I, I mean, the, the, the rationale is, is, of course, like that old um, Thatcherite Reagan thing where supply-side economics or voodoo economics, uh -huh. as George H.W. Bush famously critiqued it as, where you put more money into the hands of the job creators and investors, and it's going to create jobs and dynamism within the economy. Um, why this incident is really interesting and i find it funny i mean not funny for the people who are getting screwed over in britain right now but uh at least darkly ironic that the sort of things that worked to create a sort of dynamism 40 years ago now are not just being rejected by the populace of the uk but also being rejected by the markets as well mm -hmm. because like there was <laughs> the same people who they were arguing we're going to cut your taxes so that you can invest more and in, into the UK economy create like a thriving industrial and service economy help out the underprivileged north and like bring growth back to the UK those are the same people who are invested in the bonds you know and and like the big capitalist investors and they immediately fled from the UK economy on seeing that the british were going to have to borrow like hundreds of billions of pounds in order to get these unfinanced tax cuts, you know. Well, what do you think the contradiction is? Is it is it like a con contradiction between like finance and like productive capital, or is it has like the sort of political elite just like gotten too high on their own supply and they forgot that what they're trying to do is like keep uh, keep the situation stable mm. for capitalist reproduction and they forgot that you don't just press the Thatcher <laughs> button in every opportunity. Like there's times when that's not going to work for you. Yeah, no, I think, I think the, the, the trust people are committed ideologues and they don't really have any sense of sort of like 
I don't know, history uh-huh. or even really economics, except in like a very like Ayn Randian sort of like objectivist but sort the, the of. The Tories are just too stupid to govern. Some Tories are. I mean, uh-huh. it was a complete repudiation of the Boris Johnson uh, economic policy, which was about leveling up, which was about redistributing using like various welfare and subsidies leveling up underprivileged areas in the north and like putting more money into the nhs for example this was like the opposite this was like a return to a sort of neoliberal politics that i think yeah when you say they were high on their own supply i think that's true and I, i think what's instructive about it is how out of ideas really uh not just lids trust but the entirety of the ruling class was and how interestingly like the markets reacted to it the markets is you know, a way of sort of reifying class power, right? But mm-hmm. capital itself looked at this plan and said, like, no, we reject this because we don't have to stay in England. We can uh, leave. On the other hand, you we look at what happened in Italy where uh, they put in a technocrat, technocrat yeah. Mario Draghi, to try to, to try to stabilize the situation. You know, I, I don't want to say he was a failure, but, like, politically he was certainly a failure. I don't know if, like, economically, oh, yeah, economically he ran to the same failure. limits, but, like, it, you know, it's... Italy's sort of been going back and forth between these technocrats and right-wingers for quite a while without any real conclusion. So maybe, yeah, yeah may, maybe, like, neither side of it. Like, two, both sides are high on their own supply, or, well, I mean, or like, the... there's nothing you can do now but get high. There's, like, no... Uh, <laughs> there's no sober way of evaluating things. No, nah, I mean... Like the, the context to all this as I see it, and I think this sort of like, I mean, forgive me if, if this sounds Marxist, but like in a, in a, like a persistent secular stagnation scenario, uh, the UK, as we know, you know, under Thatcher sold off the vast majority of its public assets. It's created a whole bunch of basically like rentiers um, who have like service contracts with the UK government. Um, it's of course privatized a lot of the industry, which then, because it wasn't competitive, ended up just disappearing, you know, got rid of basically most of its industrial capacity. And so it's kind of been this husk, you know, that's been existing off of the equivalent of like money laundering, you know, the bunch of money from the world doing like carry trade between like Frankfurt and New York and, um, and, uh, Tokyo, you know, it's like, it's like this dying husk of an imperial economy mm. that's completely deindustrialized. And so what may be a rational way to do it, what the left wing of the possible would be, you know, would be to do a Jeremy Corbyn style, like industrial policy that tried to like use right. Brexit in order to, you know, leverage some return to like a virtuous cycle of growth mm-hmm. by, uh, increasing manufacturing and bringing that to under there's none of that here this is the, again that old voodoo magic that they were throwing out there mm. and you know mario draghi in italy he um as a good technocrat he was trying to bury um you know um, balance the various interests he was trying to like again return to growth this is like this is the overarching thing that they're all trying to do is to return to growth Mario Draghi failed at it because there's this not just persistent stagnation in industry, but there's this huge fucking overhang of debts. Mm. So like the big news was, of course, that uh, the the Mellon lady, what's her name? Meloni? Mm-hmm. Meloni, the uh, post-fascist woman came in, first woman president of, uh, of Italy. So, yeah, it's, so it's not all was. bad. It's not all bad. Yeah. I mean, in a very Thatcherian sense, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, strike forward for for women well the glass ceiling is broken and now like maybe someone not fascist will get through next yeah i hope so like another technocrat or something but yeah like italy itself underneath the story of of this post-fascist coming in 
is horribly stagnated. And also the split between German bonds and Italian bonds are like the highest it's been in 15 years, which means that investors are starting to not like the sovereign debt situation of Italy, which could end up in a Greek style crisis. You know, so all of these are various different iterations. It feels like of the same thing. Various different measures can be tried. It can be like zombie neoliberalism, bring that shit back, or it can be bring push put the screws to immigrants, right. you know, and try to... That um, seems to be the Maloney plan. It's yeah. just like, you know, having a handful of scapegoats to really screw over and... In or, but, you know, still doing neoliberalism, but just like, you know, directing some of the rage to it towards the marginal, uh, like the poor and marginalized people. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, I and, mean, and extreme homophobia too. is yeah. an interesting, like resurgent part of this right wing populism. Yeah. And you see that with Putin with his big speech. You oh, saw yeah, that totally the other psychotic. day. Like, yeah. I mean, there's, there's like, a the, the what people are calling like a counter hegemonic politics, such as it's arising some people celebrating like Putinism or whatever as like some sort of uh, anti-imperial sort of doctrine. I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of liberalism and it's also a form of like um, culture war post fascism that, 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 that doesn't offer really any solutions. Right. So what's the solution in Italy is to like kick migrants out well, like, Italy has declining birth rates. Like, you need workers. Where are you going right. to get them from? Why is capital going to go to Italy uh, instead of another place in that instance? Uh, it just feels like, you know, the ruling class in Italy, the ruling class in uh, the U.K., and if we look at the United States, too, the, the ruling class here is kind of out of ideas. Well, uh, Russia is a particularly interesting example of this. And I know we're, we're trying to stay away from Ukraine and Brandon. <laughs> yeah, because we'll we talk about, about it a We'll lot. talk about it a little bit. I, I saw this trend, too, of some people on Twitter being like, well, look at what Maloney is saying here. Look at what Putin is saying. It sounds just like Noam Chomsky or something like that. <laughs> but that's, that should not surprise anyone. Uh-uh. This is like where fascism came from. It, it, it took the, uh, the truth of what the left was saying, of what Marxists were saying, of the critique of liberalism, and trying to appropriate that truth in order to create uh, its own sort of mass politics. And so what Putin is trying to do is, is use this sentiment of like how uh, badly Russia has been hurt by the United States hegemony and, this, and the West in general and motivate people to fight mm-hmm. and motivate people to accept the worsening conditions mm-hmm. in Russia in order to you know, reestablish Russia as this imperial power. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to uh, be too confident what I'm seeing about how the mobilization mobilization is going, but it seems like people are not buying it, or mm. like to the extent that people buy it, like they don't want to fight. They're not looking to fight and die in the frozen mud of Ukraine to stop U.S. hegemony. Like yeah. that is, yeah. the Ukrainians seem more willing to fight. Uh, and it, it appears as though the Russian populace is as depoliticized as the American populace, right? Content to have wars being fought elsewhere as long as at home. Maybe things are declining as they have as they were in the United States through the through the aughts and, and through the teens while we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. But you know, at least you don't have to worry about it. Somebody else is taking care of it. Somebody else is fighting. Like we're just gonna get ours, you know. And, you know, the really scary thing about it, and you alluded to it earlier, is how uh, Putin and, and the far right in general, uh, the people even to the farther right than Putin in Russia, are looking at what's happening in Ukraine and saying, 
well, if this continues to go this way, we're just going to have to use nuclear weapons mm, mm-hmm. and challenge the West into a nuclear exchange with us. Mm. And if we die, this is something that uh, I saw a quote from Putin. I don't know how real it is, but he said, like, if we die, we'll go to heaven as martyrs. As martyrs, yeah. Which is, I mean, this and is, they'll go nowhere. That was the said. logic that Hitler was using at yeah. the end of the wars. Like, we're if look if if Germany loses, then. Uh, it wasn't our, the time for the Aryan race. Yeah. I was wrong about it. So it's just, they're willing to sacrifice an entire nation or the entire world to hang on to the logic of nationalism. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think the people, you know, obviously Ukraine has this incredible nationalist resurgence. Maybe the same thing's going on in Russia. I don't know. But I think in general, people are not willing to fight for their nation the way that they used to be. Certainly not in the United States. Certainly not, no. Yeah, like the... I mean, there's this, I feel like within this sort of malaise that I was talking about, there is, I feel like we're lurching collectively, like all of us, uh, towards some sort of denouement. Um, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine thing, the ultimate denouement, of course, would be like... A denouement. I, denouement would be uh, ICBMs, but we got to hope against that, right? Um, I feel like in the, in the realm of finance, I've probably said this before on the podcast, but it would not be surprising in many bourgeois commentators in the press, financial press people who are not radicals at all, are saying that we're on the cusp of a financial breakdown. Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank are both you know, quietly on the edge of collapse right now. Something that, of course, like for 14 years, um, the pigs, especially Greece, were kind of ground under the fucking heel. Portugal, of Italy. Italy. Uh, Ireland, Ireland, Greece, Greece, and Spain. All right, those yeah. are the pigs. That's the pigs. Yeah, I'm using like old terminology from ten years ago. Because, but you remember the Greek debt crisis? Mm-hmm. It was this huge thing. Well, now Italy is confronting sim- something similar to that, and the whole rationale behind it. Well, that's not true. The rationale behind uh, grounding the Greek under the the Greeks under the German heel was, of course, that like they were irresponsible and corrupt with their spending and spend thrift and they just needed a dose of austerity in order to get them off this road of like piggy corruption or whatever. When in reality, you know, what it really was, was a backdoor way of bailing out the uh, Greek and French and Swiss banks, which were like highly leveraged in, uh, in pig debt. So it was a way to make uh, the, the sort of core within the European Union's uh, economy whole at the expense of the periphery. So if, if we saw Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank collapse like Lehman Brothers, what do you think that would look like? Well, I mean, we know what it looked like last time because uh, the United it happened in the United States. We had Lehman Brothers collapse and there was, you know, a heroic attempt and it seemed at least for 14 years a very successful one in order to kind of cover over all the bad debt, uh, increase liquidity massively, bail the banks out um, and basically go back to the uh, pre-2008 situation in finance and the economy, the green shoots coming up and all that good stuff. But of course, like none of that solved the issues behind this great overhang of debt and all of these insanely Baroque instruments, you know, that banks were using and that investors were using in order to like get a crumb of (laughs) revenue back. Uh-huh. From, uh, from the excess, from the surplus that they had. Uh, instead, what it did was it foisted, it hoisted all these contradictions, of course, onto the state and onto the balance sheet of the United States government. Um, and so now you say, well, what would happen if, if they failed? I mean, do we have another like 10, 15 trillion in us? I mean, is that something that can be repeated again? Well, yeah, you can print it. 
You can print it, sure. You can't print everything. But you're also in an inflationary period right now. So if you print it, then all of a sudden you go from like 9% inflation to like 90% inflation. The point is, is that like there's this sort of backwards looking attempt um, and you're seeing in the UK to sort of deal with things the same way they were dealt with in 2008 or the same way that they were dealt with by like Volcker in the 1970s um, to get out of, you know, very unique problems. So I'm not sure at this point in time what solution there is that they have on offer. Instead, we're kind of lurching towards some sort of crisis that may actually not be possible to cover up. So it'll, it'll be like 2008, but um, Obama can't put a big bandit bandage on it. It'll just be a gaping wound. Yeah, I mean, maybe they can maybe they can try to patch it all up again. But this is, I think, the interesting thing that's happening right now. It's a scary thing that's happening um, to wonder if they have the juice again to cover this all up. But this vast overhang of like unproductive um, activity that's happening right now uh, and this stagnation in the quote-unquote real economy feels like it has to reach some sort of de- denouement mm-hmm. at some point in time. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, we were talking about uh, uh, you know, Putin trying to, to mobilize, like, for the glory of the Russian people and, like, uh, and like just not finding the juice there, not, you know, like, not finding his people willing to fight uh, the, the, the way that he had hoped in this, like, palingenetic war. Um, but he might have just jumped the gun a little bit because if, like, we do really start to see uh, the kinds of deepening crises... Uh, that are like spiraling in a way uh, far more uncontrollable than 2008, um, then then maybe like World War will be on the table to some extent. Like maybe people will, you know, find the the will to fight. Um, but then, you know, if they don't, will it just be, it, it'll, it might just be a complete social collapse. Like the economic collapse might just lead to the fall of certain countries. You know, mm. the, the nationalist ideologies that kept them, running could collapse too we, we won't know we won't we know, know like how deep this the ec- economic collapse will create an ideological collapse yeah no it feels that way i mean all these things that are happening right now are happening in the context of something like kind of the reverse of what we saw um after the great depression which was like a series of sort of like wildcat um tariffs that sort of pot start popping up as each national economy tries to protect itself after you know the great crash of Wall Street. Uh, what we're seeing now is a is a currency war though, but like a reverse currency war, basically because the Federal Reserve uh, increased uh, the interest rates, all this hot money pours into the United States, the dollar goes up, and because it's the reserve currency of the globe, every other national bank has to do the same thing. So everybody's trying to buy dollars right now everybody's trying to keep their currency from collapsing and the debts that people have to pay and the energy and the oil that people pay in dollars is becoming harder and harder to buy with the dollars as they become more valuable. So basically like at the highest level in the United States, like the highest level of our ruling class, like the command center of capital, uh, they've decided Jerome Powell and company. And of course the Biden administration, uh, by proxy have decided that, um, the working class of the United States and the world is going to have to pay for this, right? That this inflationary spiral that we've talked about on the show plenty of times that comes out of the breakdown of just in time production that comes out of like decades of like uh, misappro- mis- misinvestment in various different like infrastructures and, 
you know, um, industrial capacities, the spread of supply chains all over the globe and whatever, the breaking down of that and the supply shocks that have come out of that and the fact that millions of workers are missing from the, from the labor market in the United States and all over the world uh, has led to this inflation. But the, again, the way that the Federal Reserve and others are trying to deal with this inflation is to try to get ahead of a wage price spiral by shocking the economy and like and shocking a hot economy and a hot labor market in order to tamp down on workers maybe keeping some portion of the wage wage gains that they've made vis-a-vis inflation which is like completely sideways if you understand that this inflation that we're seeing right now is not the result of workers getting more it's a result of the circulatory system of capital breaking down and so this is leading to all these adverse effects all over the world right now. But Jerome Powell and the command centers of capital, they don't have a, any other way to deal with this than besides sticking it to the working class, mm-hmm. trying to basically create unemployment, which they've said directly. Like you can find the quotes. They're trying to increase unemployment to, quote unquote, slow down the economy. And so it's like it's not even addressing. You can imagine the left wing of the possible. You can imagine like the left wing of capital saying we need like a crash uh, international program, pull together hundreds of billions of dollars, do like a Western bourgeois Belt and Road initiative in order to like patch up the supply chain network that we have and try to get this inflation down, try to do a green energy crash in order to move away from the fossil fuels that are leading to such crisis now in Europe. But instead, it's using this very sort of like dictatorial power of interest rates in order to smash down on any power of the working class that it might have. In anticipation, of course, of a world where... um, the sort of deglobalization process that we've started to see is really accelerating, where Russia and China and India and others are in one block and the United States and the West and NATO are in another. Um, the whole thing is a mess. It's an absolute mess right now. And, um, yeah, it feels like we're lurching towards something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, what would you say to somebody like me who barely understands what you're talking about? I mean, I would... The, the question is, like, what does all this mean and what does it matter? Like, are we, are we just accelerationists? Are we super happy about, like, this hated mode of production going into complete crisis? Um, is it, like, happy and good for us to see misery and immiseration because we're like, great, that's what's going to get the class struggle going, blah, blah, blah. It's not that, right? Like, we're not bringing, we don't have the power to really do much about anything right now in this regard you know you have the power to like unionize and try to fight off some of the attacks of employers you have the ability to come together with people in your community and create like you know renters councils or something to fight back against landlords all the different ways that you know we talk about on this show that people can start to to gain and build power or whatever but like this is the contradictory nature of this social system that we live in right now working itself out and there's there's all sorts of attempts right now to blame things that are happening on immigrants or to blame them on particular bad ideas or particular bad political actors, to blame it on the senility of Joe Biden or to blame it on the Federal Reserve, you know, despite the choices that it's made. So many of so much of what's happening right now in the political realm is overdetermined by what's happening in the economic realm. And the context of all this is, is a decades-long great stagnation uh, of the capitalist system, a capitalist system which it seems like is 
in very real ways running out of steam. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole dynamic, creative, destructive process that we've seen has largely been replaced by a very much sort of monopolistic, um, rentier-driven sort of uh, political accumulation, Mm -hmm. very much wrapped into the state and very much, um, yeah, lacking a dynamism, very much in malaise. And if we don't point our fingers at that and understand that, then we're doing ourselves a great disservice. Uh, and also we can't come up with the correct solutions if we don't understand that this is like a internally, um, it's an internal characteristic of the city, of the, of the system itself. This, um, what else was I going to say? Oh, and then also too, you know, it's not celebrating misery and a miseration per se, but by saying, by being Cassandra's or by being Jeremiah's, right? Because Jeremiah famously, you know, the dark prophet who said, oh, well, we're all going to be sent to a Babylonian captivity. The sky is falling, whatever. Uh, it's not to scare people. It's perhaps, I think, if we're correct about this, to prepare people. Because so much of, like, the way that our subjectivities and politics are produced are through the actual, you know, material conditions that we live in. And things are potentially going to get pretty bad right now. And we need to be able to um, understand and, uh, and fight through that and understand that a lot of people are going to be moving very quickly in some radical political directions. Well, if, uh, if the, the schemes of, of Brandon and, and Jeremiah Powell work, <laughs> uh, what, what do you think that would look like in the short term for the American worker, for Crazy Eddie? For Crazy Eddie, huh? So what do you mean, like the Green New Deal stuff? No, or, the, uh, the, the shock. Oh, what they want to happen yeah. uh, is to have like a, what's called a soft landing. They want to bring a recession about that's hopefully going to wipe out some of the you know, bad, sloshy, f- uh, fluffy capital that's floating around, um, shock the inflation out of the system um, in terms of like people buying too much and uh, workers being too much in demand. So if they're able to do what they want to do, which is a soft landing, we'll have like a short recession for a couple of years. Inflation will be washed out of the system. We'll never get to a part where like workers are winning wage demands and those demands stick and then lead to a wage price spiral where workers getting more and asking more leads to prices having to remain high and then inflation, so on and so forth. And then we can go back to, I don't know, I guess like the slow growth of the last 14 years or so without the inflation. Uh, that's kind of the dream right now is mm-hmm. to get to a point where we can have subpar growth again and without inflation. And would that protect the U.S. to some extent from like collapses in the U.K. or in the rest of the world? I mean, the United States is uh, kind of flying high and above all this stuff. Right, it's like right. looking down from the grand heights of, uh, of, the, of the global economy with the ability to move and do things that all the other central banks and all the other states can only really react to. You know, this reverse currency war, it's not, they're not deciding it. The United States, you know, the center of capital made this decision in order to, like, shock this inflation out of the system, and they all have to follow suit because, of course, the power ultimately resides here more than anywhere mm-hmm. else. So, I mean, it was, it's really, this is tied into the stuff that Varn and I have talked about with the... Um, the sovereign debt crisis, you know, which we're going to have more episodes about. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder for places like Italy, for places like Spain, 
certainly for places like Sri Lanka, we saw recently and a lot of African nations and Asian nations and South American nations to pay their debts under these particular conditions. So a series of, um, you know, rolling sovereign debt crises are something that the IMF is specifically warning about. So maybe it wouldn't just be the UK that would have to be bailed out, but it would be all sorts of quote unquote developing nations as well. You know, what I was trying to get, get at with my question of like, if I don't understand this, what does this mean for me is, uh, and you answered it and stuff I largely also didn't understand, but like, I get the idea. Like, I think everyone gets this idea that we're headed towards some level of doom. It could be a familiar level of doom yeah. like 14 years ago, or it could be, uh, you know, a, a level of doom we have not yet experienced, at least not in the United States. Um, but not knowing, you know, how to read the tea leaves, not having the vocabulary to do it or the time or whatever, what you know? What should we be thinking about? What what should we be uh, expecting or preparing mm. for? Well, there's all sorts of like. I mean, this gets back to I think what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode about trying to like create a political working class movement. You know, like to try to convince people that it's in their material self interest to struggle if they otherwise are not struggling. If they're wrapped up in their regular lives and their families and their you know mortgage or whatever it is. A lot of that sort of stuff, I think, um, could change relatively quickly. I don't. I think that, you know, we've been fortunate here in the Imperial Core uh, that even poverty here looks way different than it looks like in the periphery, um, and that the sort of the fruits of of empire and also the fruits of like the great industrialization of this country in the 20th century um, have left have led to a standard of living that a lot of people take for granted. And I don't think that we in this country can particularly take that for granted much anymore. And we need to think about what it looks like when people start to ask for meaning and ask for uh, what to do in the face of uh, economic calamity, uh, similar to they did in the 1930s, which again was the rise of, of great uh, union working class movements mm. here in the United States and elsewhere. And it was also the rise of fascism as well. Mm. You know, yeah. there's always this sort of um, sort of like tripartite sort of there's a, the attempt to go back and bring stasis there's the attempt to like do a reactionary sort of maloney sort of anti-immigrant anti uh like pro-nationalist sort of movement thing and then of course there's going to be the liberatory and right. uh progressive movements that come out of that but we of course like need to be attentive to how we can push those things in the direction right. that so we're still looking or, or i say at this point waiting for mass politics to reemerge. Mm. if it does yeah sure yeah, I mean, do you think it? Do you think it can? I mean, that's the open questions. Well, I can pe- say all this stuff. People are so different now. Then that's what we started talking. Uh, the, the first part of the episode, we were talking about like this new kind of person. And yeah, part of that was like this inability to to like uh, join this ma- these mass political phenomenons, or at least an inability to like really uh, uh, submerge oneself into, for example, uh, you know, an international union. Yeah, like. I am one worker of millions fighting for a new world, you know. Um, that kind of mentality just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, at least, you know, not in the United States. Like, people don't really conceive of themselves and their aspirations that way. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really, like, in my doomerous, like, black-pilled, most black-pilled moments, I think to myself that maybe, yeah, like, the era of not just mass politics, but... Um, the era where um, people are capable and willing of taking the responsibility of changing the world onto their shoulders um, was a fleeting one. 
you know, but, really only a, a few hundred years there. But what I was trying to get at is like, does that also mean people aren't going to be so quick to like fight and die in a world war? You know? No, that's a good question too. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, um, yeah, it's, it's an open question because I don't, I mean, I think you see that the Ukrainian people are defending themselves heroically against invasion. There, it seems to be, I mean, there's various civil wars that are happening around the, the world where people are fighting tooth and nail in order mm -hmm. to preserve something or to create something. It's not communism, but I'm not saying like no one in the world is like fighting and believes in the fight. It's just, it seems that, uh, um, it seems that it's it's hard to do it everywhere. It's mm. hard to mobilize uh, an enthusiastic army, whether it be of soldiers or of workers or of voters. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even like when we see these right populists winning, they're they're winning with a pretty small amount of the vote. It just yeah. speaks to like the way uh, the way politics has fragmented in Italy or or wherever that like um, some new right wing synthesis party can can fill the void. Um, so I think even there you're seeing like a, a disinterest in the political process. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I wonder like if um, as ineffectual and oftentimes stupid as the politics was, I think there's an element of truth to like the Gen X sort of like anti-consumerist sort of ad busters type politics. It's certainly true that people are like wrapped up in a commodity culture and, you know, people are very much like lulled by various different forms of media mm -hmm. and there's a whole sort of spectacle or whatever around where you see people living a life that like you vicariously live through and, and blah, blah, blah. I think there's some real truth to that entire thing. But I think that the period of time that we and our parents and our grandparents, maybe, maybe great grandparents too, have lived through is a very exceptional one, I think in all of human history. And I think in the future, people will look back on it as exceptional too. Um, and I think that maybe, I hate to say it, but maybe the angel of history comes back as like sort of a Lucifer figure that maybe like our ability to reconnect and re-embed ourselves back into the social world and discover something to fight for and something to live for maybe comes through um, a, a fucking a trial and a tribulation like Jeremiah was saying. Well, of you know, course, back in of the course Bible. it will. And I, yeah. and I think we all know that. Yeah. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall.